Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is someone very special, String Nguyen. She is the founder of The Trusted Voice and four times LinkedIn Top Voice, which in three and a half years is pretty damn good. So let's start out with that. So String, what is a top voice on LinkedIn? So there are 750 million users on LinkedIn, professionals, right? So it's given to the top 300 to 400 top creators out there. So I'm one of like one of the top creators on LinkedIn. Okay. So if you're listening, pay attention because she knows what the hell she's talking about. Um, So String, could you give the audience 60 seconds on your background and how you got to where you are? Uh, My mum's a refugee from Vietnam, illiterate, but believed in the power of education. And I grew up literally hanging out in the library But if you have to know anything about me, I love fried chicken, I believe in the power of community and content creation. And I think every professional has the ability to create content and be a storyteller. Is your secret sauce fried chicken then? Yes. It's it's like my symbolism. And if you want to go really deep, everyone has symbolism. If you look at the hieroglyph, I don't know how to say it properly. The Egyptians has the hello. Thank you. (laughs) And the modern times have emojis. And I'm just leveraging on the emojis and decided fried chicken is my thing. So every time you walk, every time you walk past KFC, Colonel Sanders, uh, eat fried chicken, you go think of string, you win. Excellent. Good stuff. Um, so uh, today we're going to be talking about building communities and why that's important. So let's kick off with the million dollar question. Why does communities matter uh, in this day and age? It matters, especially if people want to build up their visibility online. There's a difference between an audience and community. An audience means that you have a following, but are they your, truly your super fans or are they the types of people that will amplify and advocate for your business or your influence? So I feel like community really dim- helps diminish the cost of marketing and advertising that we tend to throw into Facebook ads, for example. Right. Okay. So we'll get into Facebook and Google advertising in a minute because I do have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about that. But I feel that I've built a following and an audience rather than a community. And I'd like to understand why, because I've definitely tried. And I've set up LinkedIn groups. I've set up Facebook groups. I built in a, a small community of clients and former clients on WhatsApp. That's worked really well but I've never really been able to replicate it uh, on LinkedIn or on Facebook. So lots of people like my stuff and um, they promote it. They, they'll share it. Interestingly enough, I almost never get any business from the people who participate. So the likes, comments, and shares. Virtually all of my business has come from lurkers who uh, have never even so much as liked one of my pieces. Um, well, so I'm but- curious about that. So I feel like community has a difference. It's like we have an audience. If we have to describe it in an analogy of circles, I feel like we have an audience. But if we move in 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 the inner circle, we have people who are interested in us and then we have the inner circle, right? And I feel like the super fans tend to hang out in the inner circle and they tend to refer business to you. So they might not be clients, but they tend to refer business over to you. They could be strategic partners. They could be people that introduce you to investors. They're, I would treat them like almost like um, either potential clients or their clients and strategic partners. 
since I wrote my book, Making Channel Sales Work, I came to the conclusion those super fans, those partners are more valuable than customers. Yes. So I've never really resented that. You know, one partner could be worth 50 clients. And sure. we risk alienating them at our peril. And we should love our partners to death. But on the subject of pyramids to circles, which is one of the themes um, that Salesforce is releasing on my LinkedIn Live podcast this afternoon, they're talking away about getting away from that hierarchy to circles. So you have the user in the middle, then you have the company further out from there, then you have partners, and then you have your wider fan base and so forth. And recognizing that uh, you have to have your user and your customer right at the heart of everything that you do. So when you're building community, how do you make sure that you do that and you don't get in the way of that community becoming an organic entity on its in its own right? Well, I actually think if you think of it as term of your pipeline, they should be familiar with your vision and your values. If they're not, then they tend to be your audience or your passive consumers. And I actually think that you have to create a space for them and a place for them to educate because it's like a religion. And I think we had this discussion before. A religion is a manifestation of your vision and your values, right? And they articulate your belief systems as well. So a good advocate or influencer within your community would almost be like an apostle or disciple advocating the vision and values of your business. So I'm using a cult following and I think Scientology does this really well where they have super advocate fans. And and I really believe that cults, religion has embodied the idea of community really well. And we should uh, learn from these religions and cults and put that into our community of our business because I think COVID has shown that we need to increase our customer lifetime value by looking after our super fans and using them as a way to either gamify them or increase engagement in the community or surface within the audience, surface the super fans and put them into a different place because then they be, they feel like they're being treated like VIPs. What do you mean by gamify? Okay. I noticed that in communities, if you're not hyper, if you don't have any engagement, you need to create interest and engagement by having inside events, by gaming finance, by uh, showing ladder systems, by doing things that increase the rituals and engagement interactions between the community members. That's interesting. So what, what do you mean by rituals? Oh, <laughs> it's like a university has sororities. And I think the part of the hazing experience is like going through uh, the hazing first day rituals, but I feel like that kind of creates that bond between members. So you need to create those moments of bond so they the bonds tighten. And that's the difference between the audience because the audience is only having a bond between the influencer or the thought leader, right? But the community, the difference between a community is that they're actually building bonds between each other and the person who, the founder and the thought leader. That's the difference between the community. And that's probably what happened with you Maybe you haven't created those bonds between the members to allow them to stick with each other. And it's like, I need to hang out in this group because I have more reasons to do it. So it's not super reliant on you, Marcus. They're relying on each other. 
Well, that that's interesting because I mean one of the things that uh, has worked well is that within the community we share uh, content and posts and we proactively there's nothing structured to it, but we have regular opportunity for people to post and because the community shares common values, then they comment, they like, they share. Um, so that, that, I guess, is a ritual. What other successful rituals have you seen people create in order to build community? So I've been helping Justin Michael build up his community inside Discord because it is multi-layered. And I think that he has a group in WhatsApp as well, but I think WhatsApp is you have to be there in real time and sometimes the notification gets overwhelming. So it's real time conversation. Whereas Discord, I feel like it's actually scalable because you could have 5,000 conversations there, but it's very segmented based on the topics and channels. And you could have videos there as well. And one of the rituals that we set up is that we have weekly email teardowns or you get to see Justin Michael do call calls in live action. And it's like watching fire happen you know like how a house burns down literally I feel like that's what happens when you watch someone who knows how to has a compelling personality but seems to know how to create engaging content around a phone call because I feel like a lot of sellers are so scared of the phone call they want to get motivated by someone who is a master at it and he also gets rejected as well but he seems to bounce from that really easily right so um, so Discord, if I understand it correctly, is originally a place for gamers to hang out, but it seems to have evolved from there. Is that right? Yes. And they just recently got more funding to grow it. And I feel like um, if you have to look at the ecosystems of communities, Slack has just got brought out by Salesforce. Facebook just got brought out customer, which is a CRM system. So they wanted to increase the customer lifetime value by understanding more about them. And that that indicates that there's more interest around community engagement and how to increase retention. And community is a retention tool more than a new customer tool. Well, what's really interesting from the latest research coming out of um, Salesforce is that employee experience directly affects customer experience, which directly affects customer outcome. Um, And I'm seeing from what you're saying that that's really what we're talking about here. The experience of the users within the community or the community members then has an effect on your customers because they're talking behind your back and they're saying things you want them to say, hopefully, and they're experiencing it. So they're deriving value. Then they're contributing And that then becomes a virtuous circle. Yes. Well, there's so many advantages of having a community because they want you to see you succeed and they will give you the best kind of product feedback. Okay. Because again, one of the things I'm really conscious of, and this then touches on the, the whole subject around Google and Facebook adverts, is that when people see advertising, we've become inoculated and inured to it to the point where we generally ignore it. And there are 4.2 quadrillion adverts that are served up on Google and Facebook that get one or zero clicks. That's annually. I mean, I don't even know what quadrillion is. But well, a billion is 
nine zeros. So quadrillion must be 12 zeros. Wow. That's well, it is. Zeros. That's, a, that's already a lot of content out there just with money behind it, but they're not getting any ROI. They're getting zero engagement. I mean, I mean, if you run an ad and you get one click, frankly, you've got a snowball chance in hell of generating any money off that. Um, so um, if you're using community and you're developing a community, uh, you said that that can help to enhance um, your efficacy of your advertising. How does that work? Well, I think there's a few benefits of having a community that's highly engaged with your brand and your vision and your values. One is that they amplify your content, which is what you've done, Marcus, where you ask, um, you post something and all of them will come in and comment and engage with it because then it has a network effect. So that's organic marketing, but done strategically. And second is that if you get, um, using them, you're able to pinpoint the tone and the message that you could convey into uh, it, like, I feel like that's like a more organic approach. Let me restate it again. You could use them like what you did was like an organic approach and more very strategic approach of getting them to comment because that network, the people that you have in your community, your ideal customers as well. So when they go and comment into that, it has a network effect. So in that by doing that, it will like diminish the cost of advertising. Okay. So if you've got a community that is engaging, I think one of the most important aspects is to create user-generated content and user-generated advocacy. I don't know anyone who buys uh, off Amazon or any other online site where they have three stars or less on a product, unless there's been someone who really raves about it, whose opinion you trust. If it's got three, two, or one stars, that essentially is the kiss of death when it comes to an online sale. And what I see, and I'm reading people like Matthew Sweezy, reading people like Mark Schaefer, they're very much about creating conversations with customers and having customers create conversations about the stuff that you sell, about your work. And that then promotes the whole category, the the space that you occupy and puts you at the top of the, uh, the pile. In your experience with people like Justin, how have you helped them to position themselves? Obviously, he's outstanding at what he does. But how have you helped to amplify his capability to a broader audience through community? I think what he needs, like he has a really strong top of the funnel content as well. It's just surfacing those those super fans and pushing them into Discord in the first place and then making sure that they're highly engaged. Because like he has like a lot of like ideas in his head, so what I do is just like simplify the process for him of community, like audience, community, product. I did that like a funnel, but I feel like it should be like a more almost like a circular motion these days or infinite motion. Because when you have that infinite motion, you can create content that's highly engaged, and whatever happens in Discord and whatever trends that are conversations that are peaking there, I actually put it back into Justin's LinkedIn profile and use that as a way to in, get in more engagement. So I'm using data as a way of within, it's almost like you're having your own hype sandpit area. And if you have a highly engaged community, you can use the data to 
they are. So this Sandpit area, like the data that's collected within 1,500 community members, let's amplify that into his top of the funnel and have that circular motion of conversation. Okay. So not wanting to put a fly fly in the ointment. However, Discord strikes me as a community for young, vibrant people who are at the early stages of their career. What about for fusty old buggers like me? Do you know what? I have to say, Facebook groups is pretty good in terms of engagement. They tell you who's a highly engaged. It's probably the best data analytics and it's free tool because I've been trying so many tools. There's Mining Networks, WhatsApp, Telegram, Facebook groups. A lot of older generations hang out on Facebook groups. And it has the best notification as well. So what, what do you mean by that? I've been comparing like LinkedIn groups and I kind of think it's terrible. In term, it feels like a large, spammy WhatsApp group, but inside LinkedIn. And the notification has gone. So every time I post on there, it, you don't get pinged. The members who are part of the LinkedIn group don't get pinged. Whereas Facebook groups seems to get that organic reach. Um, it used to be the days where Facebook pages was the place to go to and create content. But lately, that I noticed a shift becoming to moving towards Facebook groups as a way to build up the community and get around or hack around Facebook ecosystem. Okay, so let's pretend for a second that I can bear to go back onto Facebook and be active on there. So um, what, what do I need to do to build that community? How, how do I set the foundations uh, for yes. building a Facebook community? Well, find out what's the purpose of your, the reason of your group. Is it a utility group? Is it an entertainment group? What is the purpose of that group? Why should anyone hang out in that group? So Marcus, what is your group? What is If you had to have a collective of 200 people, what is the purpose of that group? Okay. So the purpose of that group, the, the challenge that I've got, I, I'm, I'm on a non-compete at the moment. So what I would have historically done uh, was uh, use that to uh, push content around sales and sales training. Now, mm-hmm. I'm still passionate about uh, mentoring and developing people. But I think one of the, the big areas for me, for example, would be the podcast. And there I'm able to talk about sales, management, leadership. So if you were me and you could leverage that, how, how could you build up that, the Inquisitor podcast community uh, on well, Facebook? Um, so based on like a lot of things and based on what I know about you, this is just hypothesis brainstorming yes. session. I almost would put the Zoom link or do a Facebook live stream for the members only. So they get to see the raw footage of the conversation. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. That's what I would do, right? And Zoom actually hooks up to Facebook groups in live. So the VIPs or the Facebook groups has access to raw data content and they can watch it. And maybe they could even ask questions as well and contributing to the conversation in the first place. Oh, I like that. I think what you need to do is like, how do you, could you make the experience more special that they can't get outside of your normal social media? So you have to make the VIP or the community, your community, so special that they can't get it out, can't get that content, can't get that access to things only inside that group. That, I think I flipped it around, but you could only get VIP access to content inside that group or that community. Okay, and by the sounds of things, there's no paywall for that. I, I, no, or you can I, close it. 
So you could, they probably need a, so fried chicken is my passcode. What is the code, secret code for them to go through it? Or maybe they have to apply for it. So if you make it, it's also, you have to be, build that trust inside the community. So you have to make them go through a bit of a hazing because then if you make it too accessible, they won't appreciate the community in the first place. Right. Okay. Uh, you're going to have to change your passcode now. Um, <laughs> it, it's definitely not fried chicken. <laughs> I'm just thinking. you <laughs> Now, that really is very interesting. Okay. Because I've always thought of that as kind of dull to watch. But, uh, you know, you, you see people doing the bloopers. And that's always quite fun. Okay. So you've created this uh, small community. It's exclusive. It's VIP. You've made it difficult to join by creating some form of friction through the hazing process. And how do you maintain and build that momentum so that it, it doesn't feel stale? So your one, the podcast is like people probably come to you for the raw podcast. They know it's like at set time. It's almost like their favorite TV show. One of the longest running community that I've joined was that every Friday morning around 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., there's always coffee for social medias and marketers at the same spot. And they've been running for five years. And knowing that every time I go back to the city, I know that that coffee group exists to this day. And it's almost knowing that timing at that time is when like, and they mentioned their seed, that they know that they could access and watch that at the same time, at the same time of week. That's right. the first so- ritual. Yeah. So uh, at the moment, I basically, because I'm recorded, pre-recording, I record at any time. But if I were to do Tuesday at nine and Thursday at six, that way I get my global audience and people can turn up. Yes. That makes sense. Do you get it? And plus you get both audiences and they get the feedback loop, but it feels like they get to see a VIP experience because they know that they like your super fans will appreciate raw conversations that they could get. Otherwise, they will not get access to with your edited version. Okay. And you have to create more rituals as well. So they demand, they probably ask you lots of questions and you see certain patterns. Um, you have to create a space where they feel, where they could ask you those questions. And as the curator and as a moderator and as the community uh, organizer, we have to be very realistic about what to engage in and what rituals to set in. So it could be another event, um, or one day you could like set up an event where people would come and like a masterclass where everyone could meet each other. So I feel like there's going to be a really big push to virtual, but there's going to be a extreme premium event where people could get to meet face to face because that's where the how can you increase the bond is the game of community. How interesting. Okay. If we have to flip it to business side, it's like how do you increase the stickiness and the bond between the brand, the company, and the user? Go on, elaborate. And I think it's just the same thing. It's like making them feel special, making them feel heard, making them feel like they have access to things that a typical user would not gain access to. And Kajabi does this really well. Like they created a, um, a ladder system where they give away cars when they hit a certain X amount of money using right. the referral system. <laughs> they, they totally gamified it that way. And I think and referral systems, yes, referrals should be, be monetized and incentivized as a way to 
uh, give out gifts when, when they hit certain milestones. YouTube does it really well by giving out golden plaques or silver plaques and stuff. So then you've become an exclusive YouTuber. I had no idea they did that. Yes. And it's very hard to get. There's only two YouTubers that has 10 million subscribers or something like that. But I feel like that's what it is. Like you, people are used to hitting milestones. It's like getting your own golden medal, right? So you have to create this little system. But I feel like um, a way of community anchoring their brand is using a language that makes sense to them. Um, if you're, for example, Sailor's Sherpa, you probably use like a lot of mountain language. Sailor's Borgs is using a lot of language about bots and gamifications and um, using a lot of like um, Star Treks or space kind of like bots. And they use a lot of language that people already exist in the first place, but they use symbolism quite a lot as well. Um, and I think a lot of people underestimate the power of community because community uses a lot of symbolism and rituals in the first place to create that increased stickiness. <laughs> I've just said wholly inappropriate um, that you give people uh, different levels of brass balls. Um, for- <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, but if people laugh about it and a community, I think the biggest thing is a community also protects you as well. I get trolls all the time. When I get trolls, I have, I know just like my community protects me as well. It's like, string doesn't mean to say that. Have you read her post? They're very, very much a defender of your brand as well. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So uh, again, without wanting to go political, you, you're seeing this with Trump over in the States. Um, of course. He, he, he has a cult following. Yeah, the cult uh, following. Cult, cult following can say virtually anything and his supporters will then find a way of justifying and defending it. And they're, they're almost deaf to the tone of what and uh, the meaning of what he says because they've already made up their mind. Yes, and I think that's a, like a sign of a, a person who has strong influence in community. He doesn't yeah. have a, a... If you want to know who has a really avid community, you should look at K-pop. That boy bands, yeah, and Korean. Like, if you want to know how communities or advocacy is done properly, just look at Korea. Korea has pushed and put a lot of money investing in Korean top talent, and then K-pop has promoted Korea like crazy. Right. Okay. So, how can things go wrong in community when? I'm thinking of the terminology when you have, it's like a virus, right? A community is like a virus as well. When you introduce a bad virus and you don't kick them out, it could really ruin the, the vibes of the community really quickly. And, and you have to be really careful and you have to be really ruthless with it. You have to cut that in the bud or reinforce the terms and conditions appropriately so then it doesn't happen because uh, Reddit is an example of a community that uh, has like a bit of a negative vibes and it took a long time for them to reshape their brand again. Um, and I think Reddit's just survived that, but it, it's um, getting ready for those moments of PR movies, I guess, where uh, you get some bad eggs into the space as well. So you have to recognise the red flags really quickly. Right. Okay. Um, so you need to be clear about your terms and conditions before you launch. I think knowing your values, articulating your values and re-articulating your values on a regular basis 
And running town halls is a good way of um, reinforcing that. And sorry, running? Town halls. Oh, town halls, yeah. Yes, town halls. So regular town halls. Interesting. Okay. Again, not really something that I've done before. So what does a town hall sound like, look like? What's the structure? A town hall is like you have a bit of agenda. It's almost like you have a roadmap. You ask them for content feedback, ask them how they heard about it. It's it's customer feedback, really. Um, and then also, if there's anything that they don't like, this is their time for the members to come up and share. It's like, hey, I'm not happy with this or I'm happy with this. And so you ah. have to like put, so it's like them airing out the concerns. Okay. Well, I'm a huge fan of inviting negative feedback. And in fact, your negative customers and your detractors are often the uh, catalyst to innovation. And I, I see this in the, the top brands. And in fact, again, the Salesforce research points to this, that you've got to talk to your negative, uh, your detractors, because they will tell you where things are going wrong. And you should listen to them because they go on your other way to give you feedback, constructive feedback. They're actually telling you where the holes of the business is and holes of the products is. So you should listen to them. And I think a lot of times, like, um, I think you have to leave your ego at the door when you run a community because it's more serving them than serving yourself, which is a different way of creating content. But if you have a really strong influencer, um, you need to have a moderator in place to help add to the vibes and curate the vibes. It's almost like going to a bar. Like you have a singer, but not everyone has access to the singer or the, the bar owner but you have um, at the front door is the concierge who introduces the space, never lets you know what the space looks like, um, lets you, they order things. You have the waiters that also add to the vibes and you also have people, it just have, it's like running a restaurant almost, pretty much. And they want to come to the restaurant on a regular basis. So you want regulars coming to the restaurant on a regular basis. Oh, my God, I just came out with an analogy right now, and I think that makes a lot of sense now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's useful. Okay, that's very insightful. So can you give some examples of great communities? ClickFunnel has a really good community on Facebook. Why I say that, it's utility-driven. There's always... There are strong people asking for help. I mean, there's a strong sense of like asking for help over there and there's a lot of people that want to help, but it's also quite vicious in that they're competing with each other as well. So it's like an interesting um, community because like everyone wants to succeed there and monetize. So that's like the reason why ClickFunnel Facebook group really thrives. And another community that I've noticed and I've been taking a lot of notice is trends.co, where they also have like a, where they share the trends of startups and businesses. And they have like a strong community where they network with each other as well. Okay. So to summarize what I've heard so far, what's key is to build a community where you are serving others. It needs to have a cult feel where there are plenty of nudges, milestones, things that people can see themselves progressing within the community, where it's built around values. There is a bond between the community members. 
and the thought leader. It's easy to engage offline without being overly interruptive or overwhelming. There is exclusivity. There's an opportunity to learn, to seek out help, to help others. It has to feel like you are special. So again, there needs to be some friction at the beginning in terms of not making it generic or too easy to join. When you do join, you have to go through a ritual. There are rituals built into the uh, the community. There's frequency and consistency. So there's a pattern and uh, people know what what they're signing up for, uh, why they're there, why they come back. And they derive personal value from it. In doing so, they become advocates of the brand, advocates of the cult. And they are also, they're doing your marketing for you. So they're introducing people they know, like trust and rate, are people like us. And they're also brutally honest. So they give you the negative feedback. They tell you how to improve and you have to leave your ego at the door. You need to make sure as the community grows that it's well moderated. And that probably isn't you. So you have to have other people do that. And you need to reinforce the values, reinforce the terms and conditions, and make sure that people feel safe and protected in there, but not so safe uh, that it becomes anodyne. And create an environment where they want to help one another and where they can engage with other people experiencing similar problems, similar challenges, and who desire similar outcomes. That's a really nice recap, Marcus. Excellent. Okay, I should uh, maybe write an article on this. Uh, I'll give you credit <laughs> once. <laughs> um, okay, uh, may- maybe I should do a podcast with someone who knows what they're talking about. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, your podcast is probably the greatest hack in terms of information knowledge transfer. You just invite experts in, you ask really good questions, and you do summarize the recaps like that, and you learn the latest trends in what's happening in the business world. Wow. Thank you. That's really kind. I, I genuinely appreciate that. Well, co- coming from someone who's a top voice four times, uh, I can only aspire to do that. Help me get this then. Like I said at the beginning, I've often tried to build communities, but I feel that I get in the way because I do have a strong voice. I'm aware of that. And I've never been afraid of, head, you know, if someone takes a pop, then inevitably they're not going to win that game because mm-hmm. I'm quite skilled. So other people don't necessarily pile in. I think that it's more of a spectator sport, seeing how I handle it. Um, so what, what advice would you give to someone like me who is a bit mouthy and has a relatively large ego, which I, I, I think I've learned to suppress, but not necessarily as successfully as I would like in order to stay out of the way? I feel like um, as a person who attracts and repels people. <laughs> you do, right? Yeah. yeah. But I feel like um, an influence does that naturally. They attract and repel. And I feel like um, the role of, that's why you probably should have a moderator in place where they let you be who you are because you're the natural beacon where people come and watch you do that. I think that's part of who you are. And they came in the community knowing that as well. And if anything, the moderator is almost like you're, if you're the yang, then you need a yin. 
So you just need a few moderators who could help add the yin to your space. And then, you know, behind the closed doors, it's like, hey, Marcus doesn't really mean that. <laughs> so I, I need people who are organised, nice, polite, nurturing, friendly. Yeah, you, you need a concierge that will help buffer your, your like, yang. And I, so, that's what I mean, uh, like... A Jeeves to my Bertie Wooster. Mm-hmm. And I think you do that by by doing that. It actually helps with the vibes of the space, but also the knowing that there's someone else on their side as well, but is on your side, really. Okay. Very and I don't think you should moderate. I actually think you should be the continue being content creating content because one, it's um, it's not beneath you, but you, it's like little tasks that doesn't really energize you anyway. No. Organizing and little doing these menial tasks doesn't really vibe you or give you that energy but talking to people and talking to smart people do and you need to uh if anything I should highlight your energy more and if create that space for you to be the stage for your energy and your brains because people come for your brains Simon Bowen has a really interesting model and he talks about four different levels of salesperson so you have a product pusher And what they do is they sell a pill, an aspirin, and no one ever really wants to spend a lot of money on that. So inevitably, the conversation descends into price because in the absence of value, the conversation descends into price very quickly. The next level up and LinkedIn and Facebook are heaving uh, with authorities. And people come to authorities because they want a solution. But eventually, they all sound the same. And so very quickly, they become product pushers. And you see this, it's all these social media gurus who say cold calling is dead, and then cold calling gurus who say that social media uh, gurus are talking out their bum, and all of this kind of stuff. And they very quickly descend into this price conversation. The next level up is the hero seller. And people come to the hero seller for their strength because they want to be defended. And I would put into that category someone like Benjamin Dennehy, who is my old associate. And he is fantastic creating this uh, community of massive advocates. And then the next level up are the sage. And there's a big gap between the hero and the sage. And there I would put people like John Rosso and Tim Roberts and Mike Weinberg and Dave Brock. And these are people that people come to for their wisdom. And they're hoping that some of their smarts will rub off. So they're, they're, they're hoping that they will get wiser by being associated with them. And I think that's ask, what you Can I ask a question? With yeah, the stage, yeah. are they accessible or harder to reach? I think they're present and they're, they're engaging with people. I don't know, you know. Why, why do you ask? In the religion world, meeting the Pope is hard to reach. But you could talk okay. to a father. And the father tends to be like the priest is like the pill pusher in many ways, right? Yeah. So even the even in the community has their own <laughs> yeah. pyramid. But yeah, I just I'm kind of curious about these like sage. I, I suspect they, ex- there is some exclusivity and there is some distance. I mean, yeah, trying to pin these people down to get them onto the podcast, it does take work. And often there is an executive assistant you have to get through. Some of them uh, don't necessarily connect with them on LinkedIn. You have to already have their email. So you have to go through a third party to get referred. 
So, yeah, I suspect there is some exclusivity there. In order to be that sage, should you, um, uh, th- does it make sense to then create some distance to make it more difficult for people to engage with you? Yeah, I think so, because I, I noticed a pattern where if you're too accessible, they feel like you're a normal person. And I've been having this internal debate with a lot of people, and I realised that when we create trust, and if you're a giver, and I feel like you are as well, Marcus, people take advantage of it. So you need to create some kind of inner circle of trust where people had the best intentions for you. This is really interesting. I remember learning a question, um, which is, I'm happy to engage, but get introduced to me by someone we both know. Then that pushes people away, but then uh, has them look through their network to create an introduction so that it's through a trusted third party. Now, that's an interesting concept. It's not something I've thought about for years. I feel like a a lot of SaaS products have started to use this gamification where you have to know someone who has access to it because they're using that as a way to collect more like-minded users. Ah, very interesting. Because, again, this then points to another issue because I think many vendors who are many sellers who are desperate and needy will sell to anybody. And what I've discovered over the years is just how important it is that you only sell to your ideal customer because a customer who is 72% right is probably going to become the customer from hell because uh, what you're not doing is you're not, you're not building product for them. You're building product for your ideal customer. And what they ask for and what they want takes you away from your core purpose. And you've got to be very, very careful in terms, not only in terms of the product that you develop, but also in your messaging. And I'm um, working with a couple of prospects at the moment who have, over the years, deviated from their core. And as a result of that, they're spending a lot of time developing features to their product that very few people want or uh, will buy. It's incredibly debilitating because it's sucking up resource and it's taking them away from their core. So then they stop serving their core customer as well as they should. That's a really interesting concept, which I'm going to have to go away and mull on. So thank you for that. Um, It's nice being left with an awkward uh, question to contemplate. (laughs) Well, I I just think it's just like... um... You mentioned something that made me intrigued before where it's like your super fans are not buying from you. But how do you create a, maybe it doesn't have to be 100,000 community, but a really tight community where it's of high caliber people. In all honesty, I would rather have 20 great clients than 2,000 that are vaguely within my space. For the last 20 years, I've always maintained that you should charge a lot so that you could focus your 80% of your time on serving those customers brilliantly. And that's yeah. very well because um, you know, my prospecting requirement is a fraction of people who are trying to serve everyone. And the results that I've been able to get, you know, I've, I've got clients who grow 300, 500, 800, 1200% in a year. One client who came to me beginning of last year um, started her business afresh. In February, she did, uh, sorry, in January, she did 3,000. In February, she did 34,000. 
And in March, he did 500,000 in turnover. Um, and it's because I had the time to spend with her. And uh, she's never looked back. You know, her business has become a global phenomenon. And it was because I could spend the time with her. And I wasn't mm-hmm. spending eight hours a day hammering the phones trying to dial for dollars. And I think that's because you understand your value as well. And you know the time required to invest back into your clients. And I find that a lot of early stage influencers, consultants, they don't know their value props. So they try to like um, please everyone. And it's only when they find the first customer or client have they grown up from their business because they realize it's not the ideal client. Yeah, it happens a lot. If you try to please everyone, you please no one. And in fact, listening to Jay McBain, who's the lead analyst for Forrester Around the Channel, he is talking and has been for the last 12, 18 months about the importance to niche more tightly. So it's no good being the managed service provider in healthcare. You now need to be the managed service provider for walk-in medical clinics for up to 50 doctors in Southeast Chicago. And if you are not that narrowly focused, then chances are you will end up being sucked into all sorts of different directions. But if you are that Uh, tightly focused, you will grow at exponential rates. And this is one of the things um, that I'm really excited about. I'm working with uh, one of my partners, a company called Gap in the Matrix. They're a bunch of mathematical psychologists, so brains the size of a planet. And what they're helping my clients to do is really tightly define who their ideal customer is, um, and then define the message by job function, by archetype, by geography, Um, So uh, North and Southern Spain, East and West and uh, uh, USA, um, being able to narrow it down to the the individual job function. And by doing that, we're creating massive engagement in a very short space of time. So it doesn't take 18 touches to have a conversation with the chief executive. It takes one. And that is hugely powerful because when you consider the waste that goes into ineffective advertising, ineffective marketing, ineffective outreach, ineffective prospecting, and you divert all that money, that resource, that attention on just those people that you should be speaking to, that is incredibly powerful. And I think that's that's the key lesson I'm taking out of this conversation around, around community. Uh, keep the focus very tight and then do whatever you can to serve and service that community in such a way that they derive incontrovertible value and then they become your marketing engine. Is that it? That's a recap. That's a really good recap in one sentence. Wonderful. Okay. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? At the moment, um, I'm struggling with scaling my team because I feel like this month has been, or the last two months has been really great in terms of sales for us because we figure out the product and service. And now I'm just focusing on 2021 and growing the team. So my current struggle is growing the team. Okay. Can I tell it's you a, why you're wrong? Oh, of course. As a, a fractional chief revenue officer, I already could like, you already told me, yes, please Okay. The problem is not now. The problem is six months ago. The challenge that you're facing is that you haven't built your bench and you are not making recruitment your number one priority. So 
this is an exercise that requires daily engagement as the founder, as the chief executive. And what I would suggest is that you spend maybe 45 minutes to an hour a day prospecting for new hires, even though you haven't yet got a job for them, maybe 12, 18 months down the road, and you build your bench. And if you build your bench and you have five to seven candidates who are suitable when you need them, then if the first, second, third, fourth, fifth cannot take the job, the sixth one can. Mm. And you never have that ramp up or that recruitment ramp up where you have to take three months to hire because that will set you back three months to hire and then another three months or four months to onboard them. So now you've lost seven months. So I should, if I want to hire the first salesperson, I should be spending 45 minutes, 60 minutes looking for an interesting salesperson that could sell the product and service. And the, the conversation you have with them goes like this. Um, String, I'm building my business and I'm having conversations with people who I would like to hire in the future. I do not have a job at the moment. But if you're interested in having a conversation with me, let's go through the interview process now. So when I do have a job, then I can come to you and I can say, String, the job's available. Do you want it? And then we don't have to go, uh, you know, dance around the handbags and go through the recruitment process then. And okay. Do you go through like a test or anything with them? Yes. Want to see that? Uh, you have to- make recruitment hard. Recruitment should not be an easy experience for the candidate. So we're going through a recruitment process for one of my clients at the moment. It's a four interview process and it is tough. We put them under enormous pressure. We tell them up front. We lead with the offer and we say, String, should we decide that we're going to work together eventually? This is what the offer will look like. It's a 35,000 basic with um, a 70,000 on target, four weeks statutory holiday plus the eight weeks uh, public holidays. You will get a, an electric bike or electric car allowance. You'll be uh, qualify after six months for the 5% equity that we've set aside for the staff, blah, 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 blah. If we were to offer you that, is there any reason why you would be unwilling to accept? Okay, so start with the offer. The next thing is we take them through a four-step interview or selection process. And I'd happily share this with you offline. And at every stage, what we're doing is we're testing for the must-have qualities. So what are the qualities that they must have? And they are almost never skills, experience, and results, which is what most people recruit for. What predict future performance are your motivations, which are attitudes, beliefs, and values. And if those are not aligned with you and your business, it's not going to work. Now, culture fit is really important, which is what I'm... Culture fit is crucial. Cognitive ability, so their ability to adapt their resilience, their ability to bounce back, their ability to learn, their coachability is really key. So throughout, we're testing for coachability. So we'll run role plays throughout the interview process. Then we'll give feedback and then we'll run the same role play again and see if they've learned and adapted. Uh, And the most important one is habit. What are the habits that will make a salesperson in your business successful? Prospecting habit. Questioning habit, listening habit, organizational habit, planning habit. And I want to check for those 
throughout. So I'm looking for multiple examples in quick succession. And by doing that, then what I'm able to do is assess on the basis of their responses. But then I'm also, in parallel, running a battery of psychometric profiles that look at their communication style, how they behave differently under pressure to when everything is running smoothly, where their motivations are, their selling aptitude, their drivers. So I'm running all of those in parallel. And the other thing that we do is we give them projects and we pay them a day rate. Because I I always think it uh, feels like taking advantage of people. If you have them do a competitor analysis or a strategic review of your market or map out an account. So we pay them for a full day's work to do this. And that sets the tone for the culture because I want to become a destination employer. Yes. And I think people forget to pay for them because it's like one day's work. And I heard some pretty much uh, some horror stories of where people implement what they've done, work for them for free as a test being put into the business. Uh, Absolutely. Technically, their IP. Yeah, absolutely. So be fair and each step, use that in order to educate them on what will be expected of them. So going through this recruitment process takes about a month, maybe a little bit longer, but every step is harder and harder and harder. So they have to fight to stay in and always give feedback at the end of each interview and give them the decision either, yes, they're going forward or no, they're not. Don't be afraid to have that difficult conversation. And if, they, if it's a no, give them feedback as to why, because it will also test their ability to sell past no, which is a really important quality for a salesperson. Yes, for sure. So having that framework, I'm finding incredibly powerful and making sure it is structured and it's absolutely clear about what you are going to do and what's expected and how you're going to measure what their performance is in that recruitment process. But start that a year in advance. So design the roles that you are going to need in your business a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, so that not only have you identified who you're going to need to recruit, but also what the career path is so that you're hiring for someone who's still going to be on your payroll in five years' time. Yeah, I think that's like, um, I'm getting that, I have to switch my brain because I'm I'm learning what a salesperson is like, but I don't think I'm an actual sales, but I'm looking for a a hunter more than a farmer. But at least I know, (laughs) or it doesn't really matter, does it? That definition always concerns me. And, I feel like I, mean, I just triggered a, I triggered a little like. The reason I say that is that what I want, I, I, I want hunters, but I want my account managers to be hunters. So I want hunters with a plow. I want someone when they're prospecting, who is prospecting for a customer who will be a customer in 5, 10, 15 years time. Because the cost of selling to new customers is anywhere between six and 21 times higher than selling to an existing one. And I would much rather spend my time growing and developing existing clients and then getting referred into their ecosystem, into their supply chain, into their partner network, into their joint ventures, into their sister companies, parent companies, subsidiaries, into their customer's customer, as well as the classic of organic growth, selling them more of the same, something similar but different, which is where most account managers spend their time. But I think that shows a desperate lack of imagination. And so when I'm looking for a salesperson, I want them all to be hunters. 
and I want them all to be farmers. But yes, there will be a, a bias. But also look at your compensation plan, because I think that a lot of compensation drives bad behavior. So if you pay people just for winning accounts, then they become very transactional. And I'm, I'm struggling at the moment, and it's really damn hard to create a compensation scheme that rewards everybody who contributed not only to the win, but to the retention, the expansion, the full utilization of the service. How do you track that? Because it's it's easy to track new customers, but it's harder to track who contributed to the retention of the customers. Um, Michael Brody Waite says, do difficult work. And I think that's what leaders need to really embody. And that's one of our values. We should do difficult work. It should be a challenge every single day. I'm a huge fan of compound interest. The half a percent rule. If you improve everybody within the company by half a percent a day, you're 373% better off by the end of the year. By the end of year two, you're 900 and some, or 1,000% better. By the end of year three, you're 3,000% better. Yeah. By the end of year four, you're 30,000% better. I mean, th- this is really powerful stuff, but you've got to think differently. And to do that, you have to be ready to make yourself uncomfortable. And that's one of the biggest challenges. So one of the other values that we have is we fundamentally believe in constructive conflict. When I'm hiring, I want someone who fights me. I want someone who makes me uncomfortable. I want someone who disagrees and challenges with me. Because the danger is that very often, again, keep the values in mind, okay? And that's really key, that you don't deviate from that. But I want people who have a different perspective, which is why we are proactively looking for diverse teams. We want people who come from different socioeconomic, ethnic, racial, gender, religious, financial backgrounds, so that they have different perspectives. Because what tends to happen is you recruit in your own image only weaker. And that, I think, is the kiss of death. That's how you end up spiraling into the blockbuster kind of scenario. That's how you end up becoming a victim of your previous success. Compete with yourself is another value. You know, you should always be attacking yourself and never be complacent. Netflix is a classic example of this. The CEO of Netflix, when he moved from postal, sending DVDs out by post uh, and moving on to streaming, he was vilified. Uh, His shareholders gave him grief. His staff gave him grief. And he stuck to it. But it turned out to be a pretty damn good move. And I think we have to be really, really tough on ourselves as leaders. And that takes enormous courage. And you've got to have a good self-concept to do that. But that's where most people struggle because this is really difficult. Leading should not be easy. Leadership is about making sure that you are the totem for the other people around you. But what you're doing is you're building up the next generation of leaders and making yourself redundant. And each time you pass on the baton, then that allows you to move to the next level of difficult work. And you pass that skill, the previous skill down the chain of command. So everybody's game is being raised. Now that's hard. It is. Um, um, I think as a a first-time founder, it's just transferring knowledge so I could have the space to consume new things and learn new things and improve the business altogether. Well, find people whose history is your future. Go out. That's a good one. 
interesting. Go out and find people who have been through two or three scale-ups and ask them to be your mentor. This is something that you can do. And you just contact them and say, String, I've got an enormous favor and you're welcome to say no. And the deal is this. Would you be my mentor for 20 minutes a month? I will come to you with one question that I cannot answer on my own. And I will bring you the three ways I've tried to fix it, but can't. And I'll look for your direction and help. And once we've argued and agreed what course of action I should take, I promise I will implement it, even if I mess it up. And then I'll come back and report uh, what I did. And if it didn't work, why it didn't work. Uh, And then I'll come with another question. But I promise you this. If I ever fail to stick to my commitment, then you can fire me. Does that sound like a fair deal? Well, I have an advisor who has already like helped me grow exponentially um, in my business since I have him on board. Um, He said about six to twelve of them. Yep, twenty minutes a month. Yes. Yeah, and and find people who have failed and made it through, or failed and gotten picked themselves up again. The problem with being a first-time founder is you don't know what you don't know. If you're successful the first time, you suffer from a delusion that it's because of you. Okay, so be really careful of that. That's where your ego can come into uh, play. Uh, I interviewed Daniel Marcos for my podcast. Uh, Daniel um, is Vern Harnish's partner in the Scale Up Institute. And he was really successful in his first venture. Then he set up a second venture And he thought he could do no wrong. And he set up a subprime mortgages business in 2007, selling subprime mortgages to Latinos in America. And they went through the roof. And then in one day, lost everything. When Lehman Brothers crashed, he lost everything. And he had no idea because he didn't have the systems and the structure and he didn't have the scar tissue. I'll send you the link because I think you'll really enjoy that conversation. I was about to ask, hey, can you send me the link because it's not something that I should listen to. <laughs> Excellent. Look, String, we've come to the top of the hour. This has been great. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I've learned an enormous amount, so thank you. And well, um, I appreciate you just spending the last 20 minutes almost giving a coaching mentoring session as well. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, and, it, and we flipped it over to becoming coaching to like advising and teach, um, and that's me naturally because I'm always happy to learn from people who have been down the path many times more than I have. Lots of scar tissue. <laughs> I've screwed up so often. And I think that's what makes you good at what you do. If you, if you have not failed, then you haven't taken risk. One of my favorite quotes from David Sandler was, a life without risk is a life without growth. And risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility you will lose some or all of what you've got. And that's what you've got to do as a, a founder and entrepreneur. Tell me this. What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should really pay heed to? Um, so this is what I've been reading recently. Okay. This is a classic. But a book, The Netflix Wise. Yes. Queen's Gambit has been really good. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed um, that. Strong character development. I've actually been, if anything, I've been listening to Lex podcast more recently as well. And if you just write Lex podcast, you'll find him a lot. Okay. Lex What's that Friedman. About? Like, so what he does is like he invites a lot of MITs and 
he has a lot of like conversations with super smart people, similar to what you do. And he has a lot of MIT experts coming on to his show. Oh, very interesting. Okay. And that's the other thing I would definitely recommend. Range is something that I strongly recommend uh, an entrepreneur and a founder focuses on, uh, which is read widely, read history, philosophy, biology, read about evolution, read sociology, read psychology, read widely, because people with range tend to have far more creativity in finely, tightly defined uh, niches, because they come with a, a huge amount of perspective, and they tend to succeed more. Uh, the more narrowly you focus, so read extremely widely. Since I got my Audible subscription about seven years ago, I've listened to nearly 800 books, and I have learned so much, everything from the mineral evolution of Earth to the history of China from Yao to Mao, 4,000 years. Now, the Chinese had an empire of a billion people over 3,000 years ago, and they managed to run that. That's quite impressive. Have you been to China before? No. I, well, I've, I've been to Hong Kong. Different, different. If yeah. you go to, I went to Shenzhen, and their country knows how to handle billions of people. That's why I feel like startups in China uh, understand how to create users for extreme amount of people. And if you look at the uh, infrastructure, they don't, they have a really ruthless, callous way of creating infrastructure to handle billions of people because it's like, hey, we're getting you out of the way because we're actually thinking for the future yeah. of billions of people. So I feel like China has like a different um, mindset when it comes to handling growth and capacity because um, like I went to USA and USA doesn't have a good ecosystem of transport at all. Public transport is non-existent over them. Whereas China made it as one of the growth strategies is like we need to move a lot of people and mobility is going to be one of our things. So they they create ecosystems in that regards. So I think China has a different mindset in terms of like handling people. I think the reason that the West will lose to China is because China has a mindset of 100-year plans and we operate on quarterly reporting. And that's a handicap. I can't remember who it was who was interviewed, but they were asked, um, what's the, what was the impact of World War II on China? Mm, not sure yet. Now, bear in mind, this was in the 1980s. That gives you an indication of just how long-term their thinking is. Excellent strength. You've got a golden ticket and uh, you can go back and you can advise your idiot self aged, I don't know, 23. What advice would you give her? Believe in yourself more and go overseas. Definitely travel. Travel is a, moves you out of your comfort zone, but also exposes you to different cultures and thinking. Because we live in our, like, living in our parents' home is a bubble. Living in our school is a bubble. Living in our country is a bubble. So we need to go outside of the bubble to see what the world offers. Excellent. Look, I'm going to have to wrap up now, but um, tell me this. How can people get hold of you? I'm on LinkedIn. Find me on String Nguyen. And I look forward to connecting with you. Excellent. String, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. 
And if you've got comments, then please pile in. Uh, String or I will both happily uh, respond. Um, also, um, if you think you'd be a good guest or you'd like to come onto the podcast, then please email me at marcus at laughs-last.com uh, or contact me through LinkedIn and send me a direct message. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling and go and build your community. Bye-bye.